from the Bahamas. Hurricane Dorian wiped out many homes, and in some cases, entire neighborhoods were mashed into rubble. From Somalia, the UN reports that Somalia experienced the worst harvest since 2011, with more than two million expected to go hungry through December. From Mexico, estimates of 20,000 people currently seek asylum in the U.S., but new policies mean some must remain in life-threatening conditions while awaiting their court hearings. From Texas, here at UTA, two foreign exchange students from India drowned at a popular tourist destination last weekend. From Afghanistan... A car bomb exploded and killed U.S. and Romanian service members and 10 civilians in a busy diplomatic area in Kabul on Thursday. The world is hurting. The nations know pain. Darkness, death, devastation... The nations groan. People ache. They despair. They weep. Much like Israel did in exile. Israel's dark and painful exile retells the world's story. Just as Israel's sin banished them from God's presence and sent them into a world of pain, so the world's sin has done the same. Lamentations is a book that meets people there in the pain. It teaches people how to process that pain. It explains the pain and why it exists at all. And then it leads people to the God who meets us there. To the God who listens there. To the God who saves us there. To the God who reigns over the evil there and brings it to an end. The nations need to hear about this God. And we need to hear about it. This God. How He relates to us in our pain, how, he relate, how we relate to Him. And chapter 5 lays further groundwork for that relationship. How we ought to pray in our pain. What, what about the Lord's character should lead us to trust Him in pain? Chapter 5 answers these kinds of questions. Chapter 5 also differs from the other chapters in Lamentations. You remember uh, us talking about how Lamentations chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 were all acrostic poems. It was as if they were explaining Israel's sorrows from A to Z. But with chapter 5, the acrostic pattern totally disappears. And it's also the shortest, you will know, of the other 
of the, of the five poems in Lamentations. It's as if the pain of the previous chapter is so overwhelmed that he can't keep the organized poetry together anymore. And he is also spent. He is running out of breath. And all that's left is his one final burst of a prayer in chapter 5. But you'll also notice today that the man isn't alone anymore. Now we hear us and we and our. The faithful in Zion who once sat alone without any hope, they now join him in this final appeal for God to act. Painful as they were to walk through, the the previous chapters have actually renewed the people's hope and so they pray and their words become very instructive. Now to grasp that instruction, let's, let's read the passage through first and then I want to answer three questions. So verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers. Our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We're given no rest. We've given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us, and there's none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands, no respect is shown to the elders. Young women are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you've utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. I'll skip some verses here and there uh, at first, but eventually we'll, we'll come back to them. I want to answer three questions about chapter 5. Number one, what's the lingering problem here? What's the lingering problem? So the, the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. is behind them. Chapter 5 is deeper into the exile. 
And they've been there a while, and they summarize the state of things as disgrace in chapter 1, verse 1. Or, or another word is reproach here. Look and see our disgrace, they say. Our reproach. Now that's significant because God once made Jerusalem, I mean, a great city. She was like a princess among the provinces. She was beautiful in elevation and she was the joy of all the land. But now there's only disgrace. And then verses 2 through 18 further elaborate on what that disgrace was, what it included. For starters, they lost their inheritance. Integral to God's purpose was giving Israel the land of Canaan as an inheritance. And much like he set Adam in the, in the garden, God had set Israel in the land. As Graham Goldsworthy put it, Israel would be God's people in God's place under God's rule. At the same time, if Israel rejected God's rule, they would forfeit the land and God would, God would strip it away and banish them from it. And so verse 2 says... Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. More than that, though, the people as a whole become like those without a father, without mother, I mean without a husband. This is verse 3. God commanded Israel to show compassion to the, for the orphan and the widow, also to treat them justly. And and by doing this, they reflected what their father in heaven was like, what their covenant husband was like. But if they didn't do this, then God would make them like orphans themselves and widows themselves. In other words, God would leave them to fend for themselves without His protection and without His care. meaning they would also become vulnerable to other oppressors. And that comes next in verses 4 to 10. Enemy oppression. Not only did the enemies steal their property, they make them pay to drink its water. Verse 4. They force them to buy its lumber at unjust prices is the idea. Verse 5 adds that our pursuers are at our necks. We're weary and we're, we're given no rest. As, as Ben was talking to us a while back from 2 Samuel 7, the promised land was supposed to be the place where Israel had rest from all their enemies. But now they have no rest. Verse 6 We've given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Now questions abound over what that means, given the hand. But the same phrase appears in 1 Chronicles 29, where it describes some leaders pledging their allegiance to King Solomon. Okay, so what you have here is Israel making a pact, a treaty with foreign nations who then turn and take advantage of them. And things are so bad that to break off these treaties would mean they can't eat anymore. And so their livelihood depends on keeping their enemies happy all the time. 
Verse 8 then adds, slaves rule over us. There's none to deliver us from their hands. So the social order has been flipped and even the lowest class in Babylon is now ruling them and they do so without mercy. Even when they look for bread in the wilderness, they can't even do that without being attacked, verse 9 indicates. And then verse 10 says, our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. What's the imagery here? Well, the famine is being, is being compared to an oven that's used to dry out food. And that oven is being cranked up to the point where the people themselves become like beef jerky. But that's not the end of it. Moving group by group, verses 11 to 13 describe an ongoing social humiliation. Verse 11, women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands, no respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, boys stagger under loads of wood. So the enemies here haven't just overrun The people, they keep returning to shove the victory in their face. They keep returning to the women. And they keep returning uh, and keep heaping these unbearable burdens on the little boys because they can. After all, none of the men are going to stop them. They're dead. So when you've lost your inheritance and you've lost your family and you've lost your economy and you've lost your dignity, what is there that's left? Only sorrow upon sorrow. And that comes next, verse 14. The old men have left the city gate. So this is a place where everybody hung out, where they made decisions for the, for the community often, and they're all gone. The young men also left their music, it says. Verse 15, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. So no delight, no dancing, no dignity. And then verse, four, verse 17, for this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim from Mount Zion, which lies desolate. Jackals prowl over it. Jackals often appear in context of judgment in in the Old Testament. They're the scavengers among the dead wastelands. And Zion is being pictured here as a wasteland. And people are scanning the horizon of Zion and their eyes are filling up with tears so that they can't see clearly anymore. And yet the deepest problem still remains untold. All these lingering problems actually point to a much deeper problem, which is their broken relationship with God. You see, in Lamentations, we're dealing with God's covenant people. God had entered a special covenant with Israel, and that covenant explains the terms of their relationship with God. And if the people obeyed the Lord, the land would be plentiful and and it would, it would give forth this, this wonderful inheritance and they'd have rest from all their enemies and peace. But if they rebelled, 
God would send unspeakable curses and drive them from His presence in the land. That's why they cry in verse 20, Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Or in verse 22, they mention God utterly rejecting them and remain exceedingly angry with them. This cacophony of pain is but a signal that God Himself has banished them. His covenant presence and power is no longer with them. He is against them. And that is actually the worst problem in this chapter. Question two, why did this all happen? Why did this all happen? Why all of the disgrace? Why all of the reproach? Why the separation from God? Why the banishment from His covenant blessings? Verse 7, look at it. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. And so the sins of prior generations here have, have these lasting consequences. That doesn't mean they're blaming everything on prior generations. And we know that because of what they also confess down in verse 16. Look at that. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Woe to us. You recognize that word? Woe. The prophets used it when God's judgment was about to fall. Isaiah uses it multiple times in his, and what's amazing is as he's pronouncing these woes upon the people, he himself finally gets a, the curtain of heaven pulled back, and he gets to see the image of God. And what does he do but pronounce a woe upon himself? He knows that sinners cannot stand before a holy God. And so he says, woe is me. And those praying here recognize the same thing for themselves. Yes, their fathers helped precipitate the exile, but they rebelled too. And in both of these verses, the point is that sin has caused their downfall and destruction. Sin has separated them from God's presence and blessing. We learn here that God doesn't tolerate rebellion. He will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Judgment is the appropriate response to the rebellion of His creatures. Wrath is the appropriate response to evil. And that's why the exile happened. That's why God banished them from His covenant presence in the land. Sin. The result was curse and tragedy and ruin with no escape, and they they could not get themselves out of this. So what's their only hope moving forward then? That's the third question. What's their only hope moving forward? In the darkness, where do they turn for help? They deserve exile and even worse. But does hope exist at all for them? 
Not in what they can do for themselves, certainly. But there is hope in what the Lord can do for them. Notice three cries here. Lord, remember. Lord, you reign. Lord, restore. Got three R's there, kids. Think pirates. R. All right? Lord, remember. Lord, you reign. Lord, restore. Look back at verse 1. Lord, remember. Right? Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Does that mean God forgets things? Has exile slipped his mind? Not at all. Hebrews 4.13 says that no creature is hidden from his sight. God sees everyone. He knows everything always. He's also omniscient. But even more, God caused the exile. He knows exactly what's going on. Just read chapters 1 to 4. This is covenant language. For God to remember is for God to act according to His covenant promises, especially in a way evident to His people. I got that from a Table Talk magazine a long time ago. For God to remember is for God to act according to His covenant promises, especially in a way evident to His people. So recall Noah, for instance, right? He's in the ark 150 days, and then it says, But God remembered Noah, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. That doesn't mean Noah slipped his mind, like, Oh, I forgot. Sorry, man. It's 150 days. I know it's a long time. No, it means God was about to act based on His covenant promises. Or later, when Israel is stuck in slavery, they cry out to God, and it says this in Exodus 2.24, God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So He acted then to save them based on His commitment to glorify His grace in Abraham's offspring. He got Abraham's offspring out of slavery. Well, in Lamentations, Abraham's offspring is back in slavery because of their sin. And their only hope is that God act according to His promise to Abraham. And so they cry for Him to remember, to look and see their disgrace so as to act on it. They can't save themselves, but God can, and so they cry. Remember, Lord. And then next, they cry, Lord, you reign. Look at verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Now, I want you to notice the contrast with verses 17 and 18. Our heart has become sick. Our eyes have grown dim. Mount Zion lies desolate. But you reign, O Lord. 
Think about that. What was Mount Zion to Israel? Listen to Psalm 48. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Zion was the place God manifested his earthly rule. But now Zion is in shambles. Is God's reign over? Is Babylon more powerful? Is God not strong enough to fulfill His promise after all? That's the kind of questions you wrestle with in exile. Especially when your little boys come home crushed and your daughters raped. But the point here is to say, no way. Yes, God manifested His rule in Jerusalem. But God's reign was never limited to an earthly city. His throne is in heaven. Babylon isn't more powerful here. God used them like pawns. God destroyed the city Himself as a judgment. He's in control of this situation. And so their prayer becomes, this is awful, the tragedy hurts, the pain feels like forever, but you still reign, O Lord. Your throne endures forever. The storms of exile crash against the sides of their ship, but the sovereignty of God becomes a massive ballast that keeps them centered. God's sovereignty, though, doesn't remove their questions of why in verse 20. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? But it does answer the who question. The Lord reigns. And He is all that we need to get through this. And then lastly, they cry, Lord, restore. Lord, restore. Look at verse 21. Restore us to Yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. And then we get an ending that sounds doubtful at first glance. The ESV has, unless You've utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. There's another translation I think makes better sense grammatically and contextually. Instead of unless, substitute even though. So renew our days as of old, even though you've utterly rejected us. They already know God's rejection. They're sitting in it. They're sitting in the exile. He has utterly rejected them in the exile. 
But their prayer is that God in mercy, despite all of that, would act and restore them anyway. If anything changes in their relationship, God must initiate it. In Hebrew, the verb is causative here. So it's quite literally, Lord, cause us to return to Yourself, and we will return. That's their prayer. Do something in our hearts to restore us to Yourself. Do the miracle inside that makes us return to You, and we will. The pain of exile is doing exactly what God designed it to do. Namely, driving the people of God back to God. It's returning them to Himself. The best thing that can happen in pain is a closer relationship with the Lord. And so the way forward in their exile is a very God-centered one, isn't it? Lord, remember and act according to Your covenant promises. Lord, You reign forever and nothing challenges Your throne. And Lord, restore us to Yourself so that renewal comes. God's covenant grace, God's sovereign rule, God's power to regenerate hearts. That's their only hope to renew them as God's people in God's place, under God's rule. And that's our only hope as well. Like Israel, our sin banishes us from God's presence and blessing. Israel's story outside the land retells our story in Adam, outside the garden. Sin banishes us from God's presence into a world of pain and sorrow. Our only hope is God's covenant grace, God's sovereign rule, and God's power to change our hearts. And in that way, these cries become our own. Only, we're not left with a big question mark at the end of our lament. You see, Lamentations finishes with no answer from the Lord. Five prayers, five cries, five poems, and no answer from the Lord in Lamentations. What happened? Did did God hear their cries? Did God ever remember? Yes, He did hear. And yes, He did remember. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, God remembered His covenant promises. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, He acted to save His people. Israel was characterized by disgrace, by reproach. But God sent His own Son into the world to bear that reproach. And to take it away, and guess what? To replace it with honor and glory. Part of restoring us to Himself was God giving His Son as a sacrifice to appease His wrath 
and to forgive our sins and to cleanse our guilty conscience. And not only did He identify with the world in its sorrow, Jesus endured the sorrow of a cursed world to the point of death in order to destroy the source of all sorrow. And what's that source? It's sin. It's our pride-filled, covenant-breaking rebellion against our Maker. The one of matchless beauty, the one who deserved endless praise, was crushed in our place and laid in the grave. Satan schemed, the nations raged, the disciples wept, Creation itself, even through darkness over the land and the earth, shook at Jesus' death. It groaned. But on the third day, God proved that His throne is indeed forever. And He raised Jesus from the dead and seated Jesus at at His right hand in heaven. He vindicated Jesus and proved Jesus to be the one Israelite whose covenant fidelity secured our rest in God's presence. And from God's right hand, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to, guess what? Restore God's people back to God and to build a new Zion and a new Jerusalem and a new kingdom. Doesn't that happen at Pentecost? Israel hears the gospel of Jesus and it says when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The risen Jesus restores people to God through the gospel. He affects the inner transformation that they asked for here. That's why Hebrews 12 says of you, church, that through Jesus you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and to the heavenly Jerusalem. And that one, according to Hebrews, is unshakable. You are an outcropping of the new city, the new Zion. And one day we'll have complete and total rest from enemies and from all sorrows in a new Jerusalem that covers the earth. He's making a new creation. But until then, we can be sure that God hears the cries of His people and God remembers us. He has not forgotten us. And God reigns over all. And God is restoring His people to Himself. Now, if that's true, I want to leave you with a few exhortations as we wrap up Lamentations. One, make the sovereignty of God your ballast in suffering. A ballast is the really heavy part of a boat. right? You put it low in the boat's structure so that when the wind and the waves start crashing at the boat, it keeps the boat up and keeps it from capsizing. You need the weight of God's sovereignty in the bottom of your boat to endure life's storms. 
And throughout Lamentations, we've been seeing the people continue to return to God's sovereign rule. Even today, but you, O Lord, reign forever. You know, that comes up a lot with the saints who are suffering in Scripture. Psalm 10 is another lament. It's a lament of David. And David is complaining, crying out to God about all the wickedness that's going on and all the injustice that he sees. And God seems aloof and he's like, where are you? But eventually in Psalm 10, he says this, the Lord is king forever and ever and he does see. Or Psalm 102 is a lament of somebody who's afflicted. We're not sure who, but... They're afflicted and they're in a very desperate place. They're near to death. And then comes verse 12. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Or when the disciples later on, right, when when they're being persecuted in Acts 4 and they cry out, Sovereign Lord. Right? When Rachel experienced a second miscarriage about 12 years ago, that night we had listened to a sermon about God's wisdom from Romans 16. And the pastor was making a point that God was wise in cosmic things and He was wise in microscopic things. And that became the source of comfort in the Jeep on the way to the hospital. Our Father rules right now in this situation. He's working out His wise, sovereign plans. Even if we don't understand all the whys, we can trust that He's in control and this is serving a good purpose to glorify Jesus and increase our joy in Him. Make God's sovereignty your ballast in suffering. Next, draw near to the Lord in your sorrow and pain. That may sound obvious, but we need the reminder. It's it's not uncommon for some kind of suffering to enter our life. And for the first few weeks, we handle it well. God is our rock, we tell people. But as the pain continues, it becomes all-consuming. It occupies our thoughts all day long. And we search the internet for hours upon hours looking for solutions while we neglect time in His Word. And then others keep asking us about our pain as well, and so we find a kind of identity in it. It starts to define us over time. Lamentations reminds us not to let the suffering and the pain consume us like this. Our relationship with God determines who we truly are. We are His people, and He wants us to bring our pain before Him. God is actually concerned for us. He inspired prayers like this in the Bible for us to pray to Him. He means for us to process our pain with Him, not apart from Him. God inspired laments like this to teach His people how to relate to Him in sorrow and pain. And notice also again the people's prayer, Restore us to Yourself, O Lord. 
Yes, a change in circumstances would be nice. But to have the land and to have the health and to have the rest once again and still be without God would be damning. And so their first concern isn't a change in circumstances. But to have the Lord Himself. We even get a pattern here to follow in Lamentations as we process the pain. So follow the pattern of lament that we see in Scripture. When you look at the the book of Lamentations as a whole, I think Mark Vrogop is right. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but Mark Vrogop writes a book on Lamentations. It's called Deep Darkness. No, Dark Something. (laughs) Darkness and Mercy are involved in the title. Subtitle, Discovering the Grace of Lament. I commend it to you uh, for your reading. It's it's not just a commentary on Lamentations. It goes through several laments in in Psalms and Lamentations and, and then teaches you how. Dark clouds, deep mercy. Maybe that's it. Actually, I've got a footnote. I'll tell you what it is. Dark clouds, deep mercy. There you go. Mark Vrogop. But you're seeing it there on the screen. His, uh, this is his description of lament. Prayer in pain that leads to trust. Prayer in pain that leads to trust. So it's not just complaining about a lot of things. It's actually moving you somewhere. Moving you towards trust in the Lord. So we've watched the people pray in the pain of exile. They've been honest. They've asked the tough questions and raised their objections and made their appeals. But they don't stop with the pain. Right? They push forward to trust in the Lord. They don't really know what the future holds. They don't know how long the exile is going to last here. But they do know who to look to. And so when you lament, follow this, this pattern, follow this pattern of reflecting on God's character and reminding yourself of His past deeds and recalling His covenant commitments and His steadfast love and His mercies and reflect on His sovereign rule and ask Him for renewal. Rehearse the good news of all that He has accomplished and will accomplish in Jesus and then give Him your trust. Give Him your trust. So follow the pattern of lament. Prayer and pain that leads to trust. Also, I want to say this. Perhaps a few of you have chased after sin for a long while now. And you're miserable. Perhaps it has ruined your family. Perhaps it has eroded trust in your marriage. Perhaps the Lord feels very distant right now and it's left you despairing on whether you'll ever know His nearness again? I want you to look here at Israel. Many of them had strayed, had strayed from the Lord. They were enduring the consequences for their sins for many years in exile. But God's covenant grace and God's sovereignty and God's power to transform them 
fills them with words, prayers, cries to God. You should take courage to make these type of prayers your own. You should cry out to the Lord, Restore me to Yourself, O Lord, that I may be restored. Don't just pray for God to change your circumstances. Don't just pray for God to change your marriage. Don't just pray for God to take away your anger and God to take away your lust and God to take away your lack of self-control. Don't just pray for more submissive children. Hear me, those are good prayers. Don't just pray those things. Those are good prayers. But what good is it after all those things change? You still don't have God. Ask the Lord to restore you to Himself. He's the treasure. He's the goal. He is the end. Lastly, let's end here. We kind of began there with the nations, but since it's Missions Month, I want to end here. You know people who are hurting. They're at your work. They're at your school. They're in your community. They're in your immediate family. They're in this church. You know people who are in very dark places right now. Think of a person in that state that you know you're going to see this week and I want you to write their name down. Write it down. I'm going to pause for 15 seconds so you can write it down. I want you to pray for them this week. And I want you to pray for the opportunity to talk with them. Trey's already giving you homework in the evangelism class. I'm giving you some more. Look for a time to talk with them. Listen to their sorrows. And then tell them about the God who meets them there. And He meets us there, folks. Surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. I'm telling you, God meets us there. Whether it's suffering due to their own sinfulness or suffering due to living in a fallen world, Lamentations creates inroads to the Gospel. Inroads to the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. 
Begin with the people right in front of you. I know Missions Month and Global Missions and 11,000, I don't know what the count is today, how many people groups there are, and what am I to do? Begin with the people right in front of you. Every day the Lord places people in your life and their pain manifests itself in various ways. Lamentations teaches us about a God who rules over their dark situations who is rich in steadfast love and mercy, and who restores and renews people to Himself. Dale, you want to come lead the supper now? This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.